Good morning. Hi, everyone. So wonderful. Thank you so much for coming to see me this morning and joining some fellow dreamers in this conversation. I'm so excited. This is my first time at South by Southwest. Do we have any other newbies here? Yeah. Oh, a lot. Oh, good. Oh, cool. Awesome. Great. I'm completely overwhelmed and confused. How about you? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I think there's movies here. Where are the movies? There are bands? Where are the bands? Anyway, I'll figure it out at some point before I leave. Um, shout out just quickly to my brother who lives in Austin, who's here right here. Hassan Christopher, an amazing dancer and choreographer. Okay. All right. All of that out of the way. Um, I am really thrilled because this morning I get to share with you some of the lessons that I learned on a journey that I took over the course of three years. And then actually I went back out on the road a year later. And I'm here to tell you some bad news and some good news about this country. The good news is that when you get to meet Americans, everyday people who are not your coworkers, your family, your neighbors, through something other than your screen, this country is much better than it seems. That's the good news. The bad news is basically what I'm gonna spend the rest of my time talking about, and that's simply that we've got some work to do, right? So I spent the first 20 years of my career working in public policy at an organization that was dedicated to addressing inequality in our economy and our democracy. I was for four years the leader of that organization. It's a think tank. And that makes me a wonk. Someone who loves to use research and statistical analysis to spot problems in the American economy and our society, and then to do other research to develop evidence-based solutions to those problems. And, you know, in some ways, here in the kind of apex of the inequality era, business has been booming, right? We have a society where 1% of the population owns more wealth than the entire middle class, while nearly half of adult workers are paid too little to meet their basic needs for things like housing and food. And yet, in 2017, after nearly two decades writing research papers and congressional testimony, drafting legislation, lobbying Congress, going on the cable news shows and meet the press and doing all that to kind of try to advocate for more decision makers in government and business to make better economic decisions in our collective economic self-interest, I quit my job. I had this moment where I felt like I just, I couldn't keep doing what we had been doing to try to make this country a better place for more people because it wasn't working. And so I decided to hit the road in search of an answer to a question that, that I just didn't think that my fields of study and my career had prepared me well for, my fields of study in law and economics. Now that question is a question that some of you may have asked yourselves at some point, which is why? Why does it seem like we can't have nice things in America? Right? 
And by nice things, I don't mean flying cars or laundry that does itself. I mean nice things like truly universal guaranteed affordable health care. Nice things like universal child care and paid family leave and wages that keep workers out of poverty, a well-funded public school in every neighborhood, right? World-class infrastructure in the country that used to have infrastructure that was the envy of the world, a rational, aggressive, innovative, and timely response to the existential threat of global climate change. Like Those are the nice things that I would love for this society with all of its promise, all of its ingenuity, all of its wealth to be able to provide for its people. So many of our peer economies have been able to figure out solutions to these big dilemmas, the inequality in our economy and our democracy and climate change, sometimes looking to our past for the answers. And yet we're just not making enough progress fast enough on so many of these obvious glaring problems. And so I hit the road and I ended up taking a journey that would take me from California to Mississippi to Maine and back again multiple times. Um, despite the carbon offsets, I have to say I flew, I drove. At the height of the pandemic, my husband and my infant son and I piled into an RV. We were in search of the answer to the question, why does it seem like we can't have nice things? Why, not how, because I was enough of a student of economic history and economic policy to know how we had entered headlong into this era that I call the inequality era. How we had gone from an era of shared prosperity where our economy, since I don't really love PowerPoint, I'm gonna just use my hands, used to look like a football, right? With a kind of fat middle class in the middle and narrow ends of high and low income households on either side. And now it looks more like a bow tie with a squeezed middle class and bulging end, ends of high and low income households, right? I knew how we had done that. I knew about the changes in tax policy and trade policy, the loss of collective bargaining rights, globalization and technological change, deregulation. I knew all about that, but I didn't understand why. Why would a country that had figured out the formula for something we coined the American dream have turned its back on that formula so that now countries like the UK have their citizens having a better shot at the American dream of intergenerational mobility than we do. Why? So the first leg of my journey took me uh, deeply intellectually into some research areas that I wasn't really as familiar with. I had not studied and it was really more about the social sciences, right? Social psychology, uh, sociology, political science. And it was there that I got into a field of research that identified a worldview in the U.S. that is predominant. And it's the zero-sum worldview. It's the idea that there's sort of a fixed pie of well-being, and if one group gets a bigger slice, the other group must get a smaller slice. And according to the research, this is a majority worldview in the US. And they say that it's actually racialized, 
racialized in two ways. One, in that the people who see our society as a zero-sum game, right, where there's sort of no mutual progress, a dollar more in my pocket must mean a dollar less in yours, that they see that it's racial and ethnic groups who are competing for those slices of the pie, who are competing for sort of status and dominance and belonging. And it's also racialized in another way, in that the zero-sum worldview is far more likely to be held by white Americans than by Americans of color. Generally speaking, folks of color don't tend to think that our progress has to come at white folks' expense. But the reverse isn't true. Now, I thought this was really interesting. And there's a whole sort of related area of research around group status threat and last place aversion. It's basically this sort of hyper-competitive view of how we can make progress in society. And it leads to resentments and competition where there doesn't need to be. Right? Now, this was really interesting to me because I was like, okay, this zero-sum worldview is totally counter to the sort of mental model that economists have. Right? We tend to see the world as, as if the economy is more like a regular game, right? regular sports game, where you want all of your players on the field scoring points. Right? You don't want anyone sidelined due to debt, discrimination, and disadvantage. Right? Economists calculate that the racial economic divide costs the US GDP. Right? It makes sort of intuitive sense, right? Inequality, the inability for enough people to live up to their God-given potential, to have the kind of wealth and economic freedom to invest, to take risks, to provide security for their families and their communities, that's got to sap our U.S. GDP. And the fringe left-wing economists at Citigroup calculated that the black-white economic divide has cost the U.S. GDP $16 trillion over the last 20 years. Right? That's how we see the relationship between inequality and growth. But the zero-sum lie says that we're not all on the same team. And I wanted to ask, well, okay, a few things. Generally speaking, in this journey where I'm trying to figure out something that 20 years of being an expert didn't teach me, I want to do some forgetting. I want to forget a bunch of the assumptions that I have. I want to ask deeper questions. I want to not take anything for granted when I read it. When I hear something, I want to ask more. Why? Why? And so, for example, when I read and then went and visited with the scholars who did this research and they told me, yeah, White Americans are far more likely to view the world through a zero-sum prism. I didn't just say, well, okay, I guess it's just something white folks do, right? I didn't say, oh, sure, you know, there must be some natural, biologically occurring relationship between the melanin content in your skin, right, and your proclivity to see the world through a zero-sum lens. Like, no, right? Everything we believe comes from a story we've been told. And so I wanted to ask, well, who's telling this zero-sum story to my white brothers and sisters, right? Who's selling the zero-sum story to them? How are they profiting from the sale of that story economically, politically? Why are white folks buying it? Maybe even what's it costing them? 
And it was really through that inquiry that I began to look deeper at some of the chapters in American history that even with my, I've actually never done the calculation of the cost of my education. I don't think I want to, but bringing in the interest, it's a lot, right? Even with all the education that I pursued so doggedly, and I'm still paying for it, there were massive gaps in what I knew about our history. And so I had to go back, and I'm not an historian, but my book really does include a little bit of history in every chapter, because I felt like to understand where we are today, what stories we're telling ourselves today, I needed to know where these stories came from. And it turns out that the zero-sum lie was first created by the colonial plantation elite at the beginning of what would become U.S. society. Right? They had figured out a formula. Right? Stolen land, stolen people, stolen labor. That was a truly exploitative, profit-driven formula. And they needed to find stories to justify it. Justify this mass dehumanization and inhumanity. And so the stories that they told to their constituents, right? This is the colonial plantation elite, a narrow band of highly wealthy people. Their constituents were the mass of European settlers, so-called, who came over here in various levels of unfreedom, right? Of indenture. They would never be the colonial plantation elite. And in fact, they spent most of their lives working side by side with African enslaved people. And it was in a series, after a series of cross-racial servant uprisings that in one instance, the most famous one, Bacon's Rebellion, burned the capital of colonial Virginia to the ground, threatening to disrupt that brutal economic order. That the elite then said, well, we've got an idea. Why don't we offer a racial bargain? Why don't we say to these Europeans, side with your color instead of your class? You can have these skin-based privileges around property and gun ownership, around voice and representation. The only thing you have to do is enforce this economic order. Side with your color instead of your class. See the freedom and justice for black people as a threat to your own. And that is where that story came from. And as I saw the echoes of that story throughout sort of each generation in the history I looked at, I realized that that story had come to mean so much more about who we are and who we are to one another than the stories that I learned in economic textbooks, than frankly the stories I was bringing to legislators trying to tell them to invest in all of our people. And the second big insight that I gleaned on the course of my journey is really about kind of what happens when that zero-sum worldview is taken to its logical conclusion in the real world. And that's the story of what happened to many of the country's nearly 2,000 lavishly funded, grand resort-style public swimming pools. 
Now, these swimming pools were built as part of a building boom of public goods in the 1930s and 40s. Roads and bridges and libraries, parks, schools, and these pools. These pools that are not probably like the kind of community pool that you and I would think of, right? These pools could hold thousands of swimmers at a time. And they were part of this era of public goods in the 30s and 40s that was really born out of a new consensus in the wake of the first Gilded Age of inequality that we've now surpassed and and the Great Depression that followed it, right? It was this sense that actually government had a right and a responsibility to ensure a decent standard of living for people, right? To attend to the quality of life of its citizens. And it was not without its detractors and contesters, but this sort of was a shared ethos of public goods. And of course, it was represented in things that are arguably more economically significant than swimming pools, right? Things like social security for the elderly, a massive investment in housing that workers could afford. And on top of that, something really heretofore unprecedented, which was the idea of mass homeownership. The idea that the government would get in the business of regulating, devising, subsidizing, insuring, and backstopping a financial instrument that could allow a normal working class family on a modest income to own something that could be an appreciating asset, the bedrock of intergenerational wealth. That public goods ethos was also reflected in the GI Bill, right, which put a generation to college for free and into no down payment home ownership, uh, the collective bargaining and labor law and wage and hour laws of this period, right? All of this investment in public goods, this attention to public, to the public good, well, it worked, right? It helped to create the greatest middle class the world had ever seen, the highest standard of living in the world in the 1950s, in short, the American dream, that football. And yet, virtually everything I just described was in one way or another segregated, or for whites only. To a degree, and I always think it's important for me to note this as a black woman, as the descendant of enslaved people on both sides, as an economic policy expert, I did not know the extent, the design, the detail orientation of the government-mandated exclusion from the foundational public goods policies that helped to create the greatest middle class, right? So, social security, right? Excluded the two job categories that most black workers were in. Domestic work and agricultural work in a compromise with the Jim Crow delegation delegation to Congress. That massive investment in housing that I just described was based on the, and this just kills me as a policy person, the never substantiated by any data or research assumption that black people would be too much of a credit risk. And so the federal government, the FDR, New Deal, progressive government, drew maps of all the greatest metro areas in the country and surveyed them down to the block level for their racial and ethnic character and created a grading system that designated the lowest grade of D as hazardous for investment 
thereby barring private investment, including mortgages and commercial loans, from all of the significant black neighborhoods in the country. Subsidizing the creation of private developers' housing on the condition that those homes only be leased or sold to people, quote, wholly of the Caucasian race. Now, the GI Bill, right, I mentioned, was race neutral on its face, right? It didn't have any of that pesky Caucasians and Negroes language, right? But the benefits were in housing and education, right? Two highly segregated sectors. And so, so many returning black GIs didn't get to avail themselves of the full benefits. Even the collective bargaining, right? The union laws, the wage and hour laws, massive job discrimination, of course, at this period of time. And even most of the American unions allowed for exclusion and discrimination and patronage, right? So all of that public goods ethos was exclusionary, even down to those public swimming pools, either with a whites-only sign on the fence or just in the North and West and Midwest, usually by custom and enforced through intimidation and violence at the water's edge. But when the civil rights movement began to empower black families and their allies to say, you know what, hold on a second. It's black tax dollars that have been funding those public goods too, all along, right? And in the case of the swimming pools, we want our kids to swim too. By the early 1950s, many federal courts were beginning to side with the civil rights movement and say, yes, if it is a public good, it should be available to all of the public. And so, as these desegregation orders came down from federal courts to public swimming pools across the country, many towns and cities responded by draining their public swimming pools. They literally drained out the water, backed up truckloads of dirt and gravel. On my journey, I went to Montgomery, Alabama, and I took my son to this park there called Oak Park. It's this beautiful Law Olmsted sort of central park of Montgomery, but there's like nobody there. It's a very strange, eerie place. And there's this massive flat expanse, size of maybe eight of these rooms, surrounded by remembering old oak trees. And there, 10 feet underground, is the carcass of what used to be one of the largest swimming pools in the South which was closed by the city council effective January 1st, 1959. And it stayed closed for a decade. And by it, I actually don't just mean that beautiful public swimming pool. I mean the entire Montgomery Parks and Recreation Department of the city. They closed it down. They sold off the animals in the zoo. They closed the recreation centers. The people of Montgomery had no parks and rec for a decade all to avoid integration. And this wasn't just Montgomery, Alabama, because I know we're like, oh, Montgomery, Alabama, you know? This was Warren, Ohio. This is West Virginia, New Jersey, California, Washington State. Right? I became obsessed with these stories that you could find in so many places 
all across the country of the decline, the death, the destruction of the grand public pool. Now, why? <laughs> yes, I had an infant and he loved to go swimming, but that's not why, obviously, right? On this journey, I realized that what I was seeing was the zero-sum worldview put to play in real life. And what was the impact, right? Who lost out when a community drains its public pool rather than integrate it? Everybody. Not everybody equally, of course, right? The black kids never got to swim in the beautiful public swimming pools. If you weren't somebody who could then build a backyard swimming pool or start to pay a few hundred dollars a month to a private membership-based swim club, which cropped up all over the country in the wake of public pool integration, you lost out too. The entire community lost out on a place where people used to meet and come together, learn to care for one another. One of the weirdest moments in my book tour has been... Um, I got a press call from a magazine. I think it was called like Backyard Swim and Spa or something. All right. So this is a uh, a trade magazine for, you know, people who service and install backyard swimming pools. And they were doing a story on the racial reckoning of when in their industry things boomed. Right? It was the advent of their interest industry was the wake of public pool integration. So this phenomenon, right, of what was once a public good, then becoming a private cost, if you could afford it, or going without altogether, just seemed to me to be the perfect metaphor for a massive shift in public opinion that happened in the wake of the civil rights movement in this country that helped for me to understand a little bit more of the why of that abrupt transition from policies creating a football to policies creating a bow tie, right? Take this, for example. In 1956 and 1960, according to a really big longitudinal survey, almost 70% of white Americans thought that we ought to guarantee a job for anyone who couldn't find a good one in the private sector, a federal job guarantee, and guarantee a minimum level of income below which no nation should fall, excuse me, no family should fall, right? A guaranteed, like universal basic income and a federal job guarantee was popular with nearly 70% of white Americans. Those are like left-wing socialist ideas in today's politics, right? That was 1956 and 1960. By 1964, however, the share of white Americans supporting those two kind of robust economic public goods had fallen nearly in half and has stayed low ever since. And so as a researcher, when I see that kind of a swing in that short uh, time period, I have to look beyond the spreadsheet, right? I have to ask myself, so what, what was going on in society between 60 and 64 that could have caused such a dramatic swing in public opinion? Well... Let's see, right? So between 1960 and 1964, we have the March on Washington, which was for jobs and freedom, and which included among the pretty core small set of demands that the mostly black activists and their allies and organized labor brought to the National Mall and into the public consciousness, there was a federal job guarantee on their demand list, a national living wage. 
1963 was also the year that President Kennedy went on a media blitz around civil rights, firmly associating his party, the party of the New Deal, with civil rights. And of course, then we know that his successor, Lyndon Johnson, would, after making good on those promises and signing the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act into law, become the last Democrat running for president to win the majority of white voters to this day. So I say that not for partisan reasons, but just to illustrate a massive ideological turn away from a commitment to the public good once it really included all of the public, including members of the public that white folks had been taught were not good, had been taught, in fact, by that same government, right? The ones writing the laws, printing the signs, surveying the neighborhoods for their racial and ethnic character. That same government went from being the enforcer of the racial hierarchy to the upender of it. And in many ways, that was seen as a betrayal. And so throughout the book, The Some of Us, I, I find this evidence of drained pool politics in so many of the public policy head scratchers of our society. Like, why, when we did this massive thing where we created land-grant colleges in every state, created a guarantee of tuition-free or low-tuition higher education, which was a signature achievement and an investment in what would be the American century of innovation and prosperity, and then we turned our backs on that idea, right? Why did we do that? Why did we do that at the exact same time, starting in the 70s and 80s and 90s, when a college degree, because of other changes, in our economic policy became the price of entry to the middle class, why would we have said, okay, now it's out of reach for the working class to get there, right? Why would we have gone from funding seven out of $10 for public colleges at the state level and the rest being made up with federal grants that didn't have to be paid back, not loans that collect interest? Why would we have done that over the period of time when the college-going population went from being mostly men and 90 plus percent white to a plurality of students of color. It doesn't make much sense without understanding the political rhetoric that was going on around funding the next generation as opposed to tax cuts and corporate subsidies. It doesn't make sense without drained pool politics. And just like with the drained pool, who all is suffering from this debt for diploma experiment gone wrong? nearly $2 trillion in student loan debt, drag on the next generation's productivity, home ownership, right? Six out of 10 white students have to borrow to go to public college. Eight out of 10 black students do, and that's because largely of the racial wealth divide, right? The fact that black students don't have the kinds of home equity and savings and intergenerational wealth that they would have had they not been their grandparents and great-grandparents not been redlined out of home ownership for much of the 20th century. Right? But we're all suffering from an economy that has that dysfunction at its core engine for upward mobility. In the book, I see drain pool politics in the way that we never filled in the pool of public goods around healthcare in the first place, right? 
We are the only industrialized, advanced economy with no guarantee of health care. And you can see the way that racism stopped Harry Truman when he first proposed it, and racism undergirds white antipathy towards the closest thing we have, Obamacare, right? White Americans are the largest group of the uninsured, and yet the majority are opposed to Obamacare. Not when you break down the individual policies, but rather the idea of Obamacare. So throughout the book, I see all of these different ways where drain pool politics and zero-sum thinking helps explain the inexplicable. The financial crisis of 2008. Our unwillingness to come together to address global climate change because it involves a strong rule for government and the threat of collective action. And yet, in some ways, as I was on this journey and seeing this evidence of drain pool politics in so many areas of life, I began to feel actually more hopeful. It was because I was an, an economic policy generalist, so I was working on all these different areas where we were just not doing what we needed to be doing. But when I began to see this sort of common thread of racism in our politics and our policymaking, holding us back from collective action, holding us back from common solutions to our common problems, I began to think, well, gosh, if you just pull at that thread, then progress on all of these disparate challenges would be so much closer at hand. And so then I began to look at, well, is anybody pulling that thread? And that's where I became hopeful. Because I began to see evidence all across the country, and I'll say actually in some really surprising places, mostly purple and red states, right, where people were willing at the grassroots level to roll up their sleeves and link arms across lines of race and recognize that the most important things in life we simply can't do on our own, right? I can recycle all I want. I can't stop global climate change on my own. I can hire a tutor for my son and read, for, read to him. I can't make sure that his neighborhood school is an excellent, well-funded one on my own, right? Workers who taught me, they had gone and tried to get a raise time and time again, and nothing ever happened when they were on their own. And it was only when they came together to strike that they began to see movement and win. And so I started to want a name for this phenomenon I was seeing everywhere was that it was really through cross-racial organizing and power building across lines of race that people were able to actually overcome powerful interests and win. So I decided to call this a solidarity dividend, right? like an actual gain that can be unlocked but only through cross-racial solidarity. And I found so many of them in the unlikeliest places, including the whitest state in the nation, the oldest state in the nation, Maine, where I went to visit one of these towns that's, you know, a typical deindustrialized, what they call dying mill town, where for years when the textile mills had closed, the main street had been boarded up and vacant. And I walked that main street, and I saw on one end the neat and tidy boarded up shops, 
the offices that had way too much office space just because they could. And then towards the south end of the street, I began to see this main thoroughfare of this town, Lewiston, Maine, come alive. And it was coming alive because of what urban planners are always desperate for when facing the doom loop of deindustrialization, job loss, and population loss, new people. But those new people, as I began to see them with their stores, crossing the street, waving and smiling and talking to the old Mainers, were not your typical Mainers. They were black, African, mostly Muslim refugees and immigrants in small city Maine. What could go wrong? <laughs> Listen, plenty went wrong, right? Um, you know, Tucker Carlson talks about Lewiston, Maine as why he did this big aha about the loss of American culture and shifted to the great replacement theory and white nationalism. Right? This zero-sum story of illegal immigrants coming and taking jobs and welfare benefits was the right-wing narrative for scores of mayors of Lewiston, Maine and a really crazy governor of Maine who said some unbelievably racist things, look it up, but it was also the spark in the wake of a KKK rally that came to try to chase the Somali, Congolese refugees and immigrants out of Lewiston, of a rebirth of civic culture in this dying mill town. And I had a conversation with a woman there named Cecile, Cecile Thornton, who was a multi-generational Mainer. And you know, in Maine, if you're not like really from there and really, really, really from there, they just say, you're from away. <laughs> All of us are just from away, right? Cecile was just like so many middle-aged white rural folks who have been seeing their quality of life diminish in this period of great inequality. She, there are two Princeton scholars named Case and Deaton who have coined this term, the diseases of despair that have led to a loss of life expectancy for that demographic. And she was on her way with one of the diseases of despair, isolation and loneliness, which the U.S. Surgeon General tells us is as bad for your health as a pack-a-day cigarette habit. So Cecile's family had all moved away. She was retired. She was isolated and lonely. She was depressed. She had considered suicide. And one day, on a particularly bright winter day, she went down to the Franco Cultural Center to try to just connect with other human beings. Because you see, Cecile was part of the last group of people to come to Lewiston from away. And those were turn of the century, her parents and grandparents, uh, French-Canadian factory workers, Catholics, who were, of course, looked down upon and discriminated against in their own way. There was a Franco-Cultural Center, and Cecile thought to herself, if I could just go and surround myself with the language from my childhood, right? I would feel alive again. So she gets into this room, but she sees these like banquet tables with bell jars in the middle and a whole bunch of dollar bills stuffed in them. And everybody's speaking in English. And she says to the guy who checked her in, well, what, what's going on? And he says, well, you know, we have this rule, you know, you're supposed to speak French, but 
every time you speak English, you're supposed to put a quarter in the jar and there's a dollar maximum. So people just come in and put a dollar in the jar and speak in English because nobody speaks French anymore, right? Because right. everybody had been made fun of for being a Franco and having a French accent and speaking French at home. But the guy sees Cecile's crestfallen face and says, you know, there is another French club. It's over in Hillview, the housing development on the other side of town. So Cecile says, great. Tuesday, 3 o'clock, she gets in her car. She goes in there. She opens the door, and she hears the room full of the most beautiful French she's actually ever heard. And everybody in there is an African francophone refugee or immigrant. That day, she has the longest conversation she's had since her mother and father passed away. She becomes a every single week member of the other French club. And she decides actually to combine the French club so that today, to combine the two French clubs, so that today on any given, every other afternoon, when you go to the downtown Maine Franco Cultural Center, you can see mostly black African Francophone people teaching white elderly Mainers the language that they had long ago traded away for assimilation and belonging into whiteness. Now that's a wonderful story of seeing humanity in one another, realizing these points of connection. But it's not just a feel-good story, it's also a story that led to some of the kinds of grassroots organizing that made for real change in Maine. Because you see that mean old governor I was talking about, part of his politics was that he was railing against government benefits. And so when Obamacare came around and the Supreme Court used a state's rights legal theory to strike down the coverage heart of Obamacare with the Medicaid income expansion, income cutoff expansion, he vetoed it five times saying, we don't want any handouts in this state. 97% of people in poverty in Maine are white. And so this coalition, anchored in Lewiston and Portland, this cross-racial coalition, was the grassroots base for the first in the nation ballot initiative, overturning the governor's five-time veto of Medicaid expansion, winning the solidarity dividend of better health care for tens of thousands of Mainers. We had a network of Somali taxi drivers using their radios to ferry elderly homebound Mainers to the polls. These stories of solidarity dividends gave me hope, and they continue to multiply. When people recognize that for so long we've been sold this idea, this lie of the zero sum, that progress for people of color has to come at the expense of white people, that we are trapped in this ladder, this hierarchy of human value. This false ideology keeps us divided, and when we are divided, only the self-interested elite truly wins. So I released my book, The Sum of Us, in January of 2021. And it was before a lot of things. I finished writing it before January 6th, before the coordinated campaign to begin to ban books all over the country, before so much of the things that have sapped the hope that many of us felt in the summer of 2020 when we saw the largest social movement demonstration in American history. 
And so I decided I had to get back out on the road. I had to go and see if this idea of solidarity dividends was really real. I'd included it in my book, but I was like, okay, I found a few examples. I'm hoping this is right. So I went back out on the road to gather almost a dozen new stories of cross-racial coalitions being able to win the things that we can't win on our own, that we all truly need. Of folks of every race and background addressing the hidden costs of racism to us all, linking arms and refilling the pool of public goods so that we can all swim together. This morning, I want to share with you a little bit of the sound and the voices of the incredible people I met on that most recent journey across the country. They were gathered in a series of stories that became the podcast called The Some of Us. If you could play the sound, please. Thank you. Turn on your TV or scroll through your phone and you'll probably see news that makes you worried about our country, about whether a multiracial America can survive. I'm Heather McGee, and for the past 20 years, it's kind of been my job to worry about our country, to develop solutions to our biggest problems. I led a think tank studying the rising cost of college, jobs that don't pay enough, climate change, but a few years ago, I realized what I was doing wasn't working. It wasn't that we didn't have the solutions. It's that we couldn't come together to fight for them. So I quit my dream job and I hit the road. Is that Coral? Yes! Nice to finally meet you. Hey, Justin, it's Heather McGee. Hi, Heather McGee, how are you? Let's toast to find out what it takes for people to overcome their differences and win the fights that unite them. And here's the thing, they are winning. They're winning the right to clean water. I would get in the car, rain, sleet, or snow, knocking on doors, letting them know that they've been sued, and then telling them that we were here to help them fight. Expanding voting rights. And when I got there and I got my ballot and I went into the voting booth, I knew that I was engaging in a sacred hack. And righting historical wrongs. We did this, and the reason I could not be angry was because as a black woman, I was in a position of authority and power to fix it. What I found may make you look at your neighbors differently. I cried because I wouldn't have thought that anybody would care. My journey showed me that it isn't easy to come together but it is possible. Some people say we should fear our growing diversity. Some say we should cheer it. But I want to introduce you to people who are living in the America that's becoming. This was the first time in my life I had seen so many people of so many different backgrounds in the same room. And showing us what it takes to make it work. I'm Heather McGee, and this is The Some of Us, a podcast documenting my journey around the United States in search of hope and solidarity. Coming this summer from Higher Ground and Futuro Studios. Listen free on Spotify. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Okay, so there are some questions on Slido that have been 
um, voted up as well. I would love if you really want to, you can just come right in onto the um, microphones and ask your question in person. Um, all right. Okay. Okay. Yes. Hi. Hi. You've written such a powerful and amazing book. Thank you. I'm curious to hear, as readers have responded to it, what mm. you have found most surprising or intriguing about their response. Thank you for that question. Um, yeah, like it's been a minute, right? So the book's been out for two years. I've just been on a book tour um, because there's a new young readers version for middle and high school students, which I'm super excited about. And so I've been going around the country, going to libraries, middle schools, high schools, talking to hundreds of, you know, 15-year-olds and 13-year-olds about this stuff. It's been fascinating. Um, so here's what's been the most surprising. One, um, you know, particularly, honestly, for the young readers, because that's like the freshest on my mind and so interesting. Um, the book is not, it's not like a graphic novel version of the book. It's not like, oh, here's a story about a boy named Tim. No, like it is the book but just basically shorter and like with bigger font and the 130 pages of notes are gone, right? And they get it. They like really, really get it. You know, they say, don't dumb it down, right? We're young, but we're not stupid. We actually have access to all the information that you do, which was not the case when we were growing up, right? Um, and they really feel this sense that they that race is being used to keep people apart and they're very focused on inequality and climate change and so in some ways two years out i'm finding like the most exciting audience for the book now which is these young people who are already in the generation that has no racial majority um and they want to know why it's so dysfunctional and their their um their narrative right they they begin with obama and decline Right. They their narrative is one not that I had, which was like, yeah, you know, it's like generally spiraling upward. And then there was this break and it was so crazy. And oh, my gosh, you know, they're like, yeah, we just assume that things are sort of getting worse. And so the hopefulness of the book and the hopefulness of the stories is really um, important for them, particularly. Yes. Thank you so much for like macro. Thank you. Um, I have a podcast that just started called The Playful Podcast, bringing fun to the serious work of changing the world and trying to find where play could become a third identity where people gather around, they have a pet, or they like tennis, or they like to swim, right? Like other ways that people can connect. And, and then I, I had heard Angela Glover Blackwell from Policy Link talk about trying to, for us to try and resist talking about how divided we are, to stop saying those that phrase again and again and again, to, which keeps making it so. And I wonder if you had any thoughts about yeah, that. Great, 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 great. Well, first of all, Auntie Angela's, you know, one of my heroes, incredible woman. Um, uh, so, uh, and I love that idea, right? I mean, the cover of my book is two kids swimming in a swimming pool. You know, I use the metaphor of the swimming pool because it just like activates something really pure and playful in all of us. Um, I agree, right? I actually think that one of the, great ways that the fringe controls the the debate is to make us think that um, the like deeply antisocial behavior of today is like 50% of the country, right? And it really isn't. And I think that we have two things that are really impacting and distorting our view of one another. One, social media, where obviously, you know, we're 
the more we're outraged, the more time we spend, the more we engage. And so there is a an incentive in the algorithm for us to feel outraged. Um, and then the cable news media and the nightly news media, right? Same thing, right? If it le bleeds, it leads. There's this sort of rubbernecking we have towards the car crash of people doing crazy things. And yet that is not most people. That said, there is a way in which there is a there has been a high degree of tolerance for too long among the majority of people for people in power doing very antisocial and self-sabotaging things but there's a an it's really important to remind yourselves and everyone that there is an anti-racist multiracial governing majority in this country, and it keeps being heard every time it's asked, right, at the ballot booth. Um, these banning of books, not popular, right? The abortion ban is not popular. The attack on trans children, not popular, right? And yet, because our democracy is so captured and unequal by design, there's a whole chapter about that in the book, we see more policies that are unpopular nonetheless not only being passed, but getting way a lot of, you know, media attention and the sense that this is just like half the country wants this. Yes. Oh, again, Macro, thanks and for your insight. So the thesis that identify with your color, not with your uh, economic Class. status. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it seems to me there's the wealthy Mm -hmm. And then there's the impoverished, like the 97% mm -hmm. of the Mainers. And it seems that it, or do you think that it's that impoverished white class that needs this supremacy myth because of their lack of self-esteem? Mm -hmm. I mean, and how do you overcome that? Because it is zero sum for them. Yeah. If they like you, they don't like me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I both like, you know, did this research and then I just talked to people, including this woman named Bridget, who's a white lifelong fast food worker who blamed herself for dropping out of high school and waking up 20 years later and working at McDonald's and Wendy's and having three kids and her husband's also a minimum wage worker. And she was the most resistant to the idea that she could ever be paid $15 an hour. Right When the organizers came to her and said, do you think we deserve $15 an hour? She said, hell no, they're never going to pay people like us that. Right? She had these anti-immigrant views. She had these anti-black views. Right, And yet it was through organizing. And she went to the first meeting because there was free pizza. Right? <laughs> um, and But you know, it was through organizing, cross-racial organizing in a way that explicitly spoke right there the the organization she was with stand up kc their banners would say things like black white and brown we won't be divided right united against racism good jobs for all right that specifically spoke to the stories she'd been sold and told her that it was basically the corporate elite that was trying to and their you know political folks who were trying to keep her from collective action with black and brown people who were also making minimum wage, that she began to point the finger at them instead of at you know, her fellow um, people who struggled. And that was a really important shift. Um, I should go to the other side, yeah. Hi, um, first of all, thank you for your brain trust. Um, but as a black woman myself working in the equity space in corporate America, trying to create and find these solidarity dividends, how do you continue that work without feeling the weight of having to defend your own value and self-worth while you're doing the work? 
Um, thank you for your work and for that question. And it's, um, I get it all the time, right? Like uh, some version of like, how do you keep going? This is really hard. Why, why should we have to be the ones doing the work, right? Um, and so, you know, I think there's a few different levels to answer. I mean, I think one, um, they're, they're, the, the work that I'm assuming you do it, is education, right? And it's leadership development, it's coaching, it's training, and not everyone, like that is, that's the hardest job in the world, right? Like ask a teacher, right? That is the hardest job in the world. And so we should not assume that it's an easy job, that it's a sustainable, right? So there should be that um, awareness of both how some people are absolutely built for it and love to educate and love to teach and love to pour themselves into someone to see the light bulb go off. And for most people, that's incredibly hard work. And so there needs to be a sense of awareness about that. It's not just like any other job in any corporation. And then in terms of like what I personally tap into to keep myself going, it is that sense of connection to my ancestors, frankly. Right, that sense that when I'm truly dropped in, I know that they had to face far more with far less, and they did not despair. And if they had despaired, we would not be here. And who are we to despair if they had not, right? And that gives me not just a sense of like, oh, buck up, but just like, oh, they're still here. You know what I mean? They are, they are here. We have got this. This actually isn't as hard as some would want us to think, right? And, and really trying to create a sense of joy in the work for everyone. And I actually think that getting away from that zero sum, even as a racial justice practitioner and trying to make the win-win um, case helps to have us not just fighting against bad policies and institutions, but the resistance that comes is one that everybody would feel if they were told that racism gave them all these benefits and then they have to give it up, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? We're out here selling racism, like white people. Racism gives you better health care, better schools, longer life expectancy, less contact with the police. Give it up. You know, and my point is like we have to say what is the world we seek to create is not one where white people don't have health care and white people have more contact with the police, right? It's that's not actually the world we seek to create, but because the zero sum story is so intergenerationally embedded and so loud right now, we have to actually finish the sentence and say the world we seek to create is one where we all thrive. And that hopefully can begin to create more people who are willing to do the work who are not us because they see themselves swimming in that pool eventually too. All right, we have time. We have just a little bit of time left, so I'm going to maybe take one or two more questions. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I love the fact that you took your infant on this journey with you <laughs> and as a new mom. Yay, congratulations. Um, I'd love to hear your advice to, to parents on, on how do you actively engage your younger children, right, in these discussions of racism. What, what should we be doing at that young age to yeah. train them in the right direction? Well, that's a really good question. And I actually, I don't really know. <laughs> I'm just gonna, I mean, sometimes I just have to say I don't know. Um, um, you know, but like Ibram Kendi has just, you know, done a book, How to Raise a Young, um, an Anti-Racist. Um, uh, and there are lots of people who, Beverly Tatum, who have really thought about this specifically for young people and they know more about child development. I was just like, come on, kid, we got it. 
Mama's got to go to work and you've got to come with me. Um, you know, people do, kids do understand empathy though, right? They understand fair treatment, right? They, um, I think a big part of it is a decision about who, which faces your kid sees and normalizes also, you know, um, that's like one of the most important things you can do for your kid. There's a whole chapter called Living Apart about the costs of segregation um, and how that distorts children's minds. So, Thank you. yeah. Okay, I think, can we take this question and this question and then we'll, um, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Um, I'd like, uh, actually it's two questions if you can do both. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. I just got a little alert that I have just 15 seconds left. So um, I'm so sorry. Okay, I'm going to be good to the next person who's coming to speak here. Um, so I can't go over. I am going to be signing books, though, um, downstairs, okay. upstairs. And so you could bring your questions if you want there. Thank you so much for your time and attention today, everyone. Thank you.